Um, the Reformation published the Bible in English so that ordinary people could read it and understand it and, mm. uh, and be close to God in that sense. They didn't have to go through a, a bunch of priests who translated it from the Latin and decided what you could and couldn't hear. So I, I've always seen um, MMT as being the, the mechanism by which we nail the real way that government spending works to the, uh, to the door of the chapel. Uh, yeah. And let them know that uh, that we uh, we're not going to have anybody um, between us and uh, and the truth. Are you, are you the Martin Luther? Yes, the Martin Luther. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> Welcome to Activist MMT, a podcast about nonviolent MMT direct activism, introducing modern monetary theory to the world and conversations about learning MMT together. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today is part two of my two-part conversation with all three co-authors of the 2020 paper, An Accounting Model of the UK Exchequer, which is published by the Gower Initiative for Modern Money Studies, or GIMS. The three authors are Richard Tai, Andy Berkeley, and Neil Wilson. Today's episode is part two of a two-part conversation, but it's also the final part in a larger seven-part series on the paper and its authors. The first five are personal interviews with each individual author. In part six last week and seven today, I talk with all three together about their paper in depth. It should also be noted that David Merrill played an important role in the paper and was the primary influence of this seven-part series. In order to strengthen my understanding of the paper and the Exchequer, today I ask several very specific questions. Some of the topics we discuss include the so-called independence of the Bank of England, intraday credit versus exchequer credits versus actual money, the sui generis balancing item of the consolidated fund and other funds, and the daily sweeping process and how it relates to Plato, obviously. But for now, let's get right back to my conversation with Richard Tai, Andy Berkeley, and Neil Wilson. transfer to or from the National Loans Fund. And the very fact that in the National Loans Act 1968, it describes this in legislation and it says, if there's a deficit at the end of the day, then this will happen. So implicitly, it is anticipated that that there may be a deficit on the consolidated fund at the end of every day, much in the same way that 100 years before, a quarterly deficit would have been anticipated. Um, And so in in that sense, that, that, that could be another smoking gun in the sense that in in the 1968 National Loans Act, it's it's explicit that the consolidated fund may issue more money in a day than it will receive in tax. Okay, um, and obviously that is still law uh, now. Hmm. That's still effective law. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So 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 taxes aren't covering all of the spending. Okay. All right. Um, okay. So uh, next question. So. The consolidated fund is the source of moneyness in the UK, and essentially, it's that sui generis. Uh, I forget the term, but it's the thing that that shows the difference between liabilities and, and assets. Yeah, that's a balancing um, item. <laughs> okay, the balancing item, and it's essentially a number. It's just a number that that is the the source of moneyness in the UK. So the opposite side of that is the net financial assets for UK citizens. Yeah. Can you talk about the other view of that? Meaning. The, the sui generis is, is the, I guess, liability, and then the asset for the citizen is their net financial assets. What's the opposite of that? Because when you have, when I give you money, 
I'm both a debtor and a creditor in that relationship. What's the opposite side of that relationship for that sui generis asset and then yeah. that financial asset? Yeah. So that's, I, hope, this, I hope that's clear. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it's clear. It's fine. Yeah. So we, we it's it's called government securities. That's the overall overarching term. Um, the asset on the consolidated fund is um, what we've we've called in the paper equity, but it's just the the sui generis right. balancing item. Um, really, all the action is on the liability side of the consolidated fund, where they issue government securities, and those government securities come in multiple forms. As we know, they come in bonds and they come in treasury bills, but they also come in uh, in twenty pound notes, which is just government debt like anything else. We have we we get reminded of that every time we look at a twenty pound note because on, in the UK it says on the front of it, "I promise to pay the bearer on demand the sum of twenty pounds." So it's pretty clear that it's a promissory note; it's a debt instrument. And so when you're wandering around with a twenty pounds note, you have a you have a transitive liability with the consolidated fund who um, who has issue, issued a government security to the Bank of England to allow the Bank of England to issue that £20 note. What do you um, mean by transitive liability? Transitive is means that it's passed through. So it's 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 not direct, it's via a number of, of intermediate steps. And that you know that the the what's called the issue department of the Bank of England issues £20 notes. It issues those against a government security that it holds with the National Loans Fund. And the National Loans Fund holds a a similar um, uh, cross Cross transaction with the consolidated fund, and the consolidated okay. fund is where it all stops. So you can actually draw a linkage. You can you can see it like hops. It hops from the consolidated fund to the national loans fund, then from the national loans fund to the Bank of England, and then from the Bank of England into your wallet or purse as a twenty pound note. And of course, you hold a twenty pound note as an asset. You have also have a balancing um, net financial asset of of twenty pound additional net financial asset of twenty pound, and that's balanced by the uh, uh, by the corresponding um, asset on the consolidated fund, and that's how it all works. It's uh, everything's uh, everything's government securities. Okay. All right. Great. Thank you. Um, all right. Next question. Unrelated. This is this is going back to something that Andrew said on uh, MMT podcast uh, and also in the in the paper. On page fifteen in the paper, it says the DMA quote holds a stock of gilts for trading and collateral purposes. On MMT podcast, Andrew said something to the effect of. Since the 1950s and 1960s, the Ways and Means account is a, quote, daily balancing mechanism to balance the flows of money between what the exchequer is doing and what the Bank of England wants in terms of managing the banking sector so that the banking sector is in the same condition at the end of the day as it was at the start of the day. Um, Beyond managing their target rate, is there more to the nature of this balance? And why is it important that the banking system be in the same state at the end of the day as at the beginning of the day. And I know that this is not the right context, but it reminds me of misguidedly pushing a balanced budget. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the requirement for the banking system to kind of be neutral is, is, is not just all about monetary policy. It's all about managing that interest rate. So as soon as you've got a, an interest rate targeting monetary policy, um, you you don't want big shifts in what the banking sector um, are doing, uh, otherwise that's going to put pressure either way on 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 the target interest rate. Um, and of course, the the exchequer's flows, the, the the flows to and from the exchequer, change change the landscape in the banking sector. They either add money or or remove money. That, um, and so it's it's necessary from a monetary policy perspective to um, counteract those changes. So, so taxation helps to do that with respect to spending. But if there's a difference between those two things, that's when the, the government debt is either bought or sold in order to balance balance that out. Um, now, in the 1960s and 70s and 80s, the Bank of England itself was doing the was doing the, the debt management of, of the government. It was doing the trading of treasury bills and gilts on behalf of the government. Then it was doing it as a combined process with its own monetary policy operations so really it only had one target and that was to make sure the banking sector was um i guess ending the day in the position that the bank of england wanted it to that doesn't necessarily mean that it's exactly the same as at the start of the day but if it's different it's different because the bank of england chooses it not because the exchequer's flows have caused it if that makes sense now at that time, when the Bank of England was doing all of the work, depending on how the Bank of England wanted the banking sector to, to end the day, 
it might have been the case that it didn't have to drain out all of the all of the exchequer's spending through through sales of treasury bills because it actually wanted you know some some particular outcome in the banking sector and that's where the ways and means account would come in because the ways and means account would effectively be a balancing item if the government if the government had spent money into the economy and the bank of england didn't feel like it needed to drain it all out some of it would be left in and it would just be recorded as a ways and means advance by the bank um now when a, a change occurred in the sort of in the late 90s um whereby you know, the Bank of England was given its sort of supposed independence for monetary policy, and that debt management rule was moved out of the Bank of England. Uh, so at that point, uh, there was a, a kind of a new target whereby the debt management office would take over the debt management, uh, you know, the, the, the sales of the treasury bills and gilts on a daily basis, uh, cash management, uh, it can be called, and, and would therefore seek to offset any of the flows that the government was causing. So if the government was spending more into the economy than it was taxing, then some of that money would have to be drained out through through treasury bill sales uh, and vice versa if, if, if it was taxing more than it was spending. And the whole point there was to present for the, for the government to present a neutral backdrop on the banking sector for the Bank of England so that then the Bank of England could then enact its monetary policy according to what it was choosing, um, but without the flows of the government kind of interfering with that. Um, so today we have this system where, by design, the government is expected to to not add and and not remove any money from the banking sector, on aggregate through its daily transactions. And what that means is that when when the government does have a net difference between spending and taxation, it's all expressed in terms of government debt, not in terms of bank balances. So the government never accumulates bank balances when it has a surplus, and it never causes the bank balances in the in the banking sector to increase when it has a deficit by design any of those changes will always be expressed or should always be expressed in terms of changes to government debt outstanding um that's that's really the fundamental design of the exchequer today i would argue yeah so it's 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 designed to balance the banking system rather than to balance the government's budget if you like it, it that's the way it it speaks yeah. to me to be honest mm. yeah, yeah yeah ab- absolutely but of course, you can get into semantics and you can say, well, government debt is money, is a form of money. It is a monetary instrument. And when you do that, then, you know, the government is creating money or, or destroying money every day, even through this this system. Um, but if you don't like that and you, you, you prefer to think of government debt as being something different, then, you know, I suppose then that's when you can appeal to this, the concept of net financial assets. And the net flows of the government on any particular day will result in a change in the net financial assets of the of the private sector. Um, expressed as government securities, because by very design it won't be, it won't be manifested as cash, because the design of the system is such that that's 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 not how it works, on purpose. Okay. What's what's particularly interesting is that the design of the debt management account and the debt management office um, comes from the mid nineties when the this uh, this fad for independent central banks and um, global structures and uh, you know um, being run by by technocrats um, in central banks reached its peak and so that's when these um, these there was a, a big fashion for artificial separation and Chinese walls it was a uh, it was a, it was a, the, the next big thing I was going to solve all the problems and as we know it didn't and that's kind of stayed in place in that typical British way that we, we, we put these things in place and we never bother getting rid of them. Now, in the late 2000s, after the global financial crisis, of course, we started paying interest on reserves rather than doing what's called open, um, uh, open financial operations or open monetary operations, where the Bank mm-hmm. of England has to buy and sell uh, treasuries and treasury bills to try and hit, hit an interest rate. Instead, mm-hmm. the central bank just pays interest on on reserves mm-hmm. and that renders this balancing of the banking system irrelevant completely irrelevant if you didn't mm-hmm. do it then what would happen is everybody would end up with reserves and the bank of england would pay them some interest which they get from government securities that they own so we have this silly dance um, where oh. money is paid into the system 
we then swap them for, for bonds because that's what the debt management office does to balance the banking system. And then the central bank goes in there and QEs out another load of stuff to, to put it back to reserves so they can pay interest on it. It's, uh, I mean, in terms of job creation schemes, it's a pretty good one, but uh, mm-hmm. it's not the sort of one that we want. Oh, okay. All right, good, good, good. Uh, next question. Uh, we, we spoke, you spoke about the, uh, the different views of consolidation, the, uh, the whole government, I forget the terms, but the whole government one where it's where the where the Bank of England is part of the public sector and then the uh, opposite one, which is where it's part of considered part of the private sector. We spoke about that, but in the paper, it says uh, on page eight, it says the Bank of England is therefore part of the public sector, though not the central government. And it's, yeah. it seems a contradiction because the public sector, by definition, is the government at all levels. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I, th- I think, um, yeah, I, I, I can see why you would you would um, interpret it that way. And, and in, in, in some senses, I think it's probably just a semantic issue. I mean, in, in the UK, there are public entities that we do not describe as central government. For example, what we call local authorities. So that might be sort of local city councils or county councils and things like that. And things like nationalised businesses, you know, they, they'd be public but not central government. I guess they have they're, they're, they're kind of at an arm's length from the government and have some degree of autonomy, some degree of independence, you might say. Um, and in that sense, the Bank of England isn't isn't formally part of government. However, it is owned by the government. It's owned by the Treasury, uh, and it's governed by the Treasury. Really, it does have an amount of independence that was granted in 1998 for certain for certain parts of its activities. But that doesn't mean that it's you know completely independent. It certainly is not completely independent. Okay. So I think I think there's an extent to which the bank is is kind of at arm's length from central government. There's also a sense in which it's really completely tied to central government because it's 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 really an agency of of the treasury. Mm. Um, so so the, the, you know certainly certainly people that are big fans of of central bank independence would would like would like to insist that it's not part of central government and and you know for. for for a bunch of different administrative processes, it's not, you know, um, explicitly part of central government. But okay, it's it's equally fair, I think, to view it as pretty central to to, to everything. Okay. <laughs> I think right, it's enough. probably worth at this particular point in time pointing, uh, killing that independence line, good and proper. The Bank of England is a nationalised institution that is directed and controlled by the Treasury, and the Treasury allows it to set the interest rate as long as it doesn't do it in a manner that actually damages the United Kingdom economy. If it tried to do that, then the Treasury has got override powers in the legislation that would allow it to, t- to set it back. So mm. there's a little bit of this where it's a, um, yet again, there's a little bit of a uh, kidology going on here. Yes, we're going to pretend that the Bank of England is independent, but if it get if it got in, in the same way as we try and pretend that, we, that taxes pay for public spending, but if the uh, if, if the push came to the shove, then the Treasury would just t- tell the Bank of England what to do, and there would be no mechanism by which the Bank of England could say no. Okay. Okay. And, and the, the terms of the terms of independence don't relate in any way to the the mechanisms that we've described by which the sure. government spends via the Bank via the Bank of England. So that's you know a lot a lot of people kind of claim no no that can't be true. But I mean even for monetary policy, which is which is you know the the, the aspect of the bank's activities that they have independence for even that you know if you look at the last 10 years m- most of the main monetary policy initiatives have been sort of backstopped by the treasury provided indemnities or capital injections and therefore authorized by the treasury so even to a massive extent monetary policy isn't isn't independent at least not at the moment okay. um, so hmm. yeah all right good um all right so next question um intraday credit Intraday credit is money that is not money in the sense that average human beings would understand. It's only internal to the government itself. And I believe that there might be a, a couple other terms to, to describe that. It seems to me that intraday credit is therefore basically a license for various governmental departments to issue currency or request that it be issued via the Bank of England or the Consolidated Fund or whatever in certain amounts and under certain conditions. Is am I correct, number one? And can you just please elaborate on the concept of, of intraday credit? Yeah, intraday credit. Okay, um, intraday, intraday credit is a mechanism by which a banking system can operate. There's no way that you can actually run a banking system, a modern banking system, in anywhere near 
um, an efficient manner unless you operate it with intraday credits. And that's because transfers in one direction don't match transfers in the other direction. All transactions are asynchronous. And so you have this system where transactions are sent between banks. In other words, they're cleared so that they can all record it in their books. And then at the end of the day, uh, it's all settled. Uh, and it's settled across the books at the Bank of England. And in the meantime, all that happens is that deficits are run up at the Bank of England by all the banking entities. And that's, uh, that's what they do. Uh, the banking entities, the private banking entities, have to post collateral, which is government securities, gilts and treasury bills in, in, the, in the UK's case, uh, against which uh, intraday credit can be, uh, can be issued. And of course, HM Treasury issues gilts. So they don't, they're sort of exempt from that, or at least they, they appear to be as far as, we can, uh, as far as we can gather. But yeah, intraday credit is really a banking system phenomenon. It's the, uh, it's the mechanism by which a modern banking system can operate. Well, then let me, let me make sure I'm, I'm, what I'm intending to ask about is that there is a kind of money that is only money in the government hmm. within, the, within the government itself. Yeah, is there so we, something else? Yeah, we call well? that exchequer credits. Those are the exchequer credits that, uh, that we mentioned in the, in the document. It's essentially the way, the, the way that you would see that is like if, if, if you've ever run a budget in a business where you're, uh, you, you, you go cap in hand to the, uh, to the finance director every year and you go, well, you know, I've got this project and that project and the other project to do and uh, I've drawn up this budget and this is how much money I'm going to need to do that. And the finance director will look at you and, uh, you know, tut a bit and then go, right, okay, well, we'll sign that off. And then you run your department against that budget. Now, none of that money is real at that point. It's only real when you ask the finance director to pay it and the finance director agrees to pay it. If the company's in trouble, it, they, they, it, the finance director may say, I'm sorry, we haven't, we haven't got uh, any money in the pot. So government works like that. Exchequer credits are essentially budget money. And when a department wants to spend, it spends against its budget. And the uh, HM Treasury then will order the Bank of England to, uh, to, to pay that out into the, uh, into the private sector. And that's the difference between what government can do and what a private company can do is that the finance director i.e. the IHM Treasury, um, can actually order the bank to pay whether there's any money in the pot or not. Because uh, obviously there's uh, legislative mechanisms by which you can actually issue issue the money. Mm -hmm. All right. So I, I, I do think it, it feels correct, and I'm going to say it again, and, and you'll tell me if I'm right or, or clarify. It feels correct that exchequer credits is essentially a very limited license to give to governmental entities that they can end up with money in the real world somehow that yeah. they essentially essentially very limited license to issue currency under certain conditions and on, and for certain uh, it's, it's, and, uh, it's it's authorized by parliament that's what the, what they do is they go every month and say next month we need to spend this much um, there's a a formal process by which the treasury has to ask an officer of parliament which is called the comptroller and auditor general i believe is that right way around? Mm -hmm. Yep, that's right. Yeah, good. Yeah, I, think yeah. I can remember. So the comptroller and auditor general, the uh, he checks the parliamentary record and says, yes, Parliament has authorised this expenditure for that particular department. So your next month budget is X number of million pounds, mm -hmm. uh, or X number of billion pounds for the big ones, and that department then gets a credit, an exchequer credit to that amount, and that's how much it can request the treasury to issue into the private sector over the into following the month. Yep. I think I think the the analogy I like is is of an overdraft, which because you know if, if I arrange an overdraft with my bank, I might I might arrange a five hundred pound overdraft, and once I've arranged that, that five hundred pound doesn't exist. It's it's not a liability for the bank. There's no there's no new bank deposits. There's no the balance sheets of the bank and the banking system hasn't changed at all. But as far as I'm concerned, I can spend five hundred pound. Now. It's only when I decide to, to spend something that that impacts the banking sector and impacts the bank's balance sheet. And by that measure, you would say money now exists. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I choose to then spend £100 of that overdraft and all of a sudden I've transferred that money. I have a debt on my balance sheet now, but I've transferred that money to, to Richard and he's now got money. He's now, he's now got a balance in his account. That's, that's money in the banking system. Mm -hmm. So money's been so money's being created. I've taken on a debt 
and 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 somebody else, say Richard, has has now got now got cash at their disposal. Now that that five hundred pound limit, that's what I could have spent, uh, but but until I spend it, it doesn't exist as money. And and, and it's similar similar when when Parliament passes its you know supply and appropriation legislation, it it passes authorization for an amount to be spent in the following year, and that amount to be spent will um, irrefutably become money when the government decides through the processes that we've described at the Bank of England. So in a sense, Parliament is determining the overdraft limit. It's not money. It's not, it's not, it doesn't become money as soon as the, as soon as Parliament passes that authorization, but it's inevitably going to be money. It's potential money. Uh, and it's, That's, it's, it's potential it's poten- money. Exactly. Yeah, hmm. exactly. Yeah. It's potential money. And in that sense, I think the overdraft analogy is, is, is a good one. It, it, it's not perfect, you know, but, but it's a good one because it's, it's, it's authority to spend, but it's not yet money. It's only money at the point in which the choice to spend is made, and that and that's done on an individual basis by the government departments. You know, each month and each day. Yeah, that 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 makes sense. I think potential money, I think, captures it. Mm-hmm. And and there's there's an element of potential money. This this internal government exchequer credits being misinterpreted as real money in some sense and i think that that's i don't i don't exactly know how but i have a feeling that that is a significant element of misunderstanding um among the public that they use the term money to associate to that but it's really not money at that point well, the other thing that to probably bear in mind there is that uh, money then has to be converted into actual stuff and if a department's got the potential to spend I'd say a hundred million pounds on something, it can spend that badly by overpaying for items, or it can spend that well by getting a very good deal out of the private sector. It's that really, I think, that rankles with uh, with the the general public. They in, implicitly understand that the government really should be driving a hard bargain and getting a good deal for its money, and from an MMT point of view. It would be better if we concentrated on that rather than the actual numbers themselves. Can can you clarify between those two things again? You said we should be concentrating on this more than yeah. Because, yeah we we should be concentrating on um, what we get for the money. What's oh, okay. the actual physical thing that we're 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 buying? Did we get as as many helicopters as we? As we wanted for our ten million pounds or whatever. Real world benefit versus real world you benefit. Know, more bang for your buck. Yeah, bang for buck is what. That's what the public is concerned about. Whenever you hear about discussions about government spending, all they ever talk about is numbers. They don't sit there and say, right, we need to spend this better. We need to spend it um, on and make sure we get more stuff for our money. Which is, and that's what the public want. They want the government to drive a hard bargain and and, and get good value for money. That's what mm-hmm. they mean. They don't mean spend less. They mean spend better. Right, right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, okay. Uh, I'm going to try. I'm going to take a little bit of risk here, and I have a feeling I'm going to cut it, but I'm going to try. <laughs> um, the the concept of sweep, sweeping at the end of the day, I think that's the right <laughs> yeah. term. I think of this as the following, and I, I'm, I'm only beginning, so I'm, that's I'm, – I'm, if this completely messes up, then thank goodness there's I, I can edit. <laughs> I see it as a, as a picture a metal pipe, a small metal pipe, and it has you know a big hole on one end and a big hole on the other end, but it also has small holes in the middle. And I think of it as a Play-Doh thing that you push clay through, and you know the clay comes out. And th- the pipe, think of the think of the inside of the pipe as the public sector, and outside of the pipe is the private sector. On one end of the pipe is basically the consolidated fund, the government. And it pushes it through, and some of that money makes it out into the private sector. But there's there's a mess left inside the pipe. There's bits and pieces left inside the pipe. And I see the sweeping part as clearing out that pipe and pushing everything back to the consolidated fund. That actually, I think that that is that a reasonably accurate, if not very elegant uh, analogy for <laughs> what sweeping means, that you're cleaning out that pipe at the end of every day? I think that's pretty good. Yeah, it, it's a it, yeah. yeah. the whole the whole The whole sweeping thing is is because we pay interest on on reserves. If we had zero interest, if we had a zero interest rate policy as MMT would recommend, then we wouldn't need any of this nonsense at all. 
because I'm actually just... I'm actually very surprised to hear that. I thought it was not because of interest rates, but rather because of just simply the over complexity of all of these entities and funds and and it's it's because if they don't sweep, they will leave money in the uh, in the banking sector. So it's this is it's all this down to zeroing the banking sector at the end of the day, um, and it's all about trying to draw the 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 excess reserves out that end up stuck in in bank accounts in various places. So they're trying to get that back so that they don't have to pay as much interest out. Well, there's, a, there's an easier way not to pay interest out, and that's not to pay any in the first place. And, <laughs> and then you wouldn't need any of the government banking system. You could sack everybody. You would just not need it at all. You could just use standard commercial bank accounts because there'd be no interest being passed at all. And we could simplify the system and save a fortune and sack a load of uh, overpaid financial <laughs> financial people. Um, uh, I wanna, I'm going to clarify it. You, you said clearing out the banking system um, maybe that wasn't the right phrase but but essentially yeah. clearing out the banking system but when you say banking system yeah it's, it is the government banking system not the, the commercial banking no we're, system. Ca- we're talking the commercial banking system as well because the uh that the money goes out into the the money goes out into the into uh into various accounts that the the government's got all over the place both commercial and and the and within the government banking system so it's uh yeah so you end up with this with this sweep process where the whole of the public sector transfers its balances to the national loans fund overnight to and that what that does at the bank of england it moves reserves from the from the banking system and from from the main public accounts to the consolidated fund and so it it actually drains the banking sector so it's it's part of the process of zeroing the banking system at the end of the day this this process that we uh, that, that this odd process that we follow and the reason for that is so that the government doesn't have to pay out as much interest to the banking system um, overnight. Overnight, yeah. That's the reason huh. for doing it. I'm actually very surprised. So, so in my analogy, it actually does reach outside of that pipe as well to yeah. to grab some. Yeah, the the not not every public operation within the uh, within what's called the Exchequer pyramid uses government banking service bank accounts. They're encouraged to, but there are quite a lot of commercial bank accounts as well, and so the sweep. As far as we're aware, it includes those. So it's all about trying to drain that back. Ostensibly, it's to you know reduce the cost to the exchequer, but but overall, it's to it's this balancing the banking sector game that uh, that came into play really in the in the mid uh, in the mid nineties. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, essentially, essentially, what it's doing is it's consolidating the exchequer. So it's taking all of the various accounts in the exchequer, some of which might be pluses and some of some of which might be minuses, and just Adding them all together into one overall overall balance, and whatever that balance is, the exact mirror image must be the case in the banking sector. So if you if you, if you take all of the accounts that the exchequer has, consolidate them into one place, which is well the consolidated fund and then the national loans fund, whatever balance is on that, if it's a positive, it means there must be a negative in in the commercial banking sector, hmm. and if it's a negative, it means there must be a positive. In the commercial banking sector, right. and in either case, it means there must be a policy response by the exchequer, by the government, um, in order to rectify that. You know, either send the money back into the banking sector or drain the money out of the banking sector, so that they present that neutral, neutral position to the Bank of England to then go and do their monetary policy. Okay, so let me ask one final question regarding sweeping, and that is, if this is even possible to answer, roughly how much of that sweeping occurs within the government? The government banking system versus the commercial banking system. I don't know. I, got, I, I would think most of it operates within GBS, doesn't it? I would think so. Yeah. There's, there's, a, there's a strong encouragement to use GBS bank accounts um, across the public sector. The Treasury requires you to obtain authorization before you can use an actual commercial account. Yeah. Um, I can't remember what. If it's eighty percent. I'm yeah, I think, I think it is. There's something like 2,000 accounts that are within uh, the government banking service, I think. Mm. And uh, and they're when I think on Treasury Minutes, at the back of Treasury Minutes, there's always some uh, blurb about uh, how many accounts are within the GBS and how many are out with. And I think it's around about that figure you just stated. Mm. Okay. All right, great. Um the government banking system and secondarily the debt management account, quote, connects the core exchequer to the wider banking system. The GBS and the DMA, government banking system, debt management account, are, f- are funds. So I believe that they, I believe, and I 
I'm, I wrote this obviously before you answered the first question, so, but I'm just going to continue reading it. So I believe that they are passive middlemen or pipelines through which money is passed between the government and commercial banks. What is the, what is the nature of the connection? And can, in if, I don't know if it's giving a, a couple of examples to kind of bring that to life of what the, what the nature of that connection between the, the government banking system, I guess the ex, just, just more generally, the exchequer and the actual the commercial banking system. Yeah. So the, the nature of the connection is that there's a, there is an account or a set of accounts at the Bank of England, what we call the Paymaster General drawing account. That's actually where all the money sits and all the departments uh, essentially write checks off of that. Now, what, what happens, what we, what we discovered after we did a bit of the eureka moment with the second version of the, of the document was realizing that the government banking system is what's called an agency bank. And what an agency bank is, is a, um, it's a bank, sort of a bank within a bank. It's a, uh, it's a bank that uses another bank account as its, as its reserve structure, if that makes sense. What, uh, in accounting, they're known as memorandum accounts, and the, the main account is a, a control account. So what we have in, in the GBS is that there's all these you know, thousands of, of GBS accounts, all of which have got balances in them and have all got separate account numbers. But when, for, say, for example, the Department of Work and Pensions decides to pay a state pension, it sets its source account as the account that it's actually operating with, and it sets its target account as the as a pensioner that it's that it's paying, but it also sets a third account, which is what's known as the contra account, and the contra account is an account at the Bank of England where the money actually comes from, and that's the paymaster uh, paymaster general drawing account. So in, within the accounting, it's a it's a three way structure. There's a, a source account, which is the budget account, the exchequer credit account. There is a target account, which is a uh, an account at uh, in the actual banking system. That's that's a person's actual bank account, and then there's the where's the money come from account, the contra account, which is where the action that's the account that actually gets debited um, with the actual money. So when a uh, a government department looks into its account within the government banking service, all it sees are numbers, and these are not liabilities of a commercial bank. And even the documentation within government says that they are not to be considered as commercial bank deposits; they're just ledger numbers essentially that get debited when payments are ordered but the money sits and is spent from the bank of england okay i was just going to um when you were talking about the funds earlier on um some sort of interesting facts sort of you know popping into my head in terms of the history of them so the consolidated fund and and other funds um, that predate the consolidated fund, they were set up with the uh, aim of drawing in revenue in order to make payments on what was called funded debt. So previously, the government or the treasury or the exchequer, as it was, would issue debt instruments, um, say they would I wanted to borrow money for a hundred years on what was known as a as a terminable annuity, and in order to pay out the payments on an annuity, uh, an act of parliament would be raised um, that would essentially raise certain revenues. It would tax certain things. It would uh, raise duties and customs, etc. And those would be targeted into that fund that would then build up in the exchequer and be used to pay the uh, six monthly or annual um, interest payments on these annuities. So those are the origins of the funds. And I think that's quite an important uh, aspect to to detail as part of the story. So, for example, the consolidated fund was uh, set up on the back of a customs and excise Act of Parliament um, that raised certain taxes, certain duties, certain customs, and that they were basically paid into this fund that then was earmarked for certain uh, debt payments, essentially, or interest payments upon debt. Um, so that, that's, uh, that's, I think, an interesting aspect that should be told as well. 
Okay, great. Uh, all right. Well, then I'll, I think I'll, I'll use this uh, the topic that I skipped over as a final question, and that is, could could each of you? Uh, okay, let me read what I had. On MMT podcast, Richard, you mentioned a conversation that you had with David Merrill, mm-hmm. and Richard expressed your his curiosity about UK government spending, and David encouraged him to look into it. And Richard, your initial, you initially were hesitant because essentially you said you were not an academic. Yeah. And I don't know, but I would guess that you and your paper are, you and your paper are struggling for attention, just like the MMT as writ large is, is struggling for attention. And I see this as parallel to the MMT project as a whole. MMT economists are not in the so-called top schools and top rated journals because those in power are exactly the ones who rank and gatekeep those schools and journals. And you three are you three are not officially sanctioned or credentialed as academics, but with this paper, you are acting like academics. And to a certain degree, many MMT lay people are acting like academics. And, uh, and hopefully this experience of your writing this paper and will inspire others to kind of do the same thing. And lots of MMT lay people, I mean, all of us are basically, you know, we can have conversations with economists online. And even though we have absolutely no training and that kind of riles them because, you know, I, I, I have a PhD and I have to talk to a layperson on Twitter. <laughs> um, but can you can you all just kind of address, you know, you're you've written this paper and now you are kind of academics in a sense. You have done something in that sense. So I, I don't even have really a question, but can you kind of just address this concept of becoming an academic, just choosing to become an academic. Well, the the, the line I've always used is that I've always seen it like the Reformation. Um, The Reformation published the Bible in English so that ordinary people could read it and understand it and Mm. uh, and be close to God in that sense. They didn't have to go through a a bunch of priests who translated it from the Latin and decided what you could and couldn't hear. So I've always seen um, MMT as being the, the mechanism by which we nail the real way that government spending works to the uh, to the door of the chapel, uh, yeah. and let them know that uh, that we uh, we're not going to have anybody um, between us and uh, and the truth. Are you, are you the Martin Luther? Yes, the Martin Luther. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's, a, it's a Lutherian project. I mean, it's a, I'm, I, I've never liked this particularly with uh, it, it, we're increasingly getting it across society. Um, where there are people, this veneration of experts that's been going on. I, I've always liked the Feynman line, which is that science uh, is the belief in the ignorance of experts. And I don't mm. think that's any more, uh, any more large than in the field of economics. Mm. Mm. Yeah, okay. absolutely. I think, I, th- I think what I would say about, well, your question, Jeff, is that I think there is what what we've done. What we've done with this document is actually pretty niche, and there isn't really anybody else in that space. The academics aren't really doing that. We're not talking about macroeconomics, really. We're not talking about automatic stabilizers or multipliers or sectoral balances, really. I suppose we touch on sectoral balances a, a little bit, but the point is, we're not really doing the type of stuff that, at least at least I've seen, most economists looking at you know we, what we've done is a, a sort of very detailed and thorough institutional analysis and almost, almost I dare I'm reluctant to say but almost like a legal analysis mm. um, and nobody nobody else is doing that at least not in the UK um, so in, in one sense we're not even really stepping on anyone's toes we're not we're not really challenging a, a lot of the things that the professional economists do I mean th- there are examples of things that we've described and conclusions that we've arrived at that are different to things that economists have stated about the United Kingdom. For example, there is, there, you know, there's a bunch of economists in the United Kingdom that believe that the government banks with commercial banks, and that um, the government deals with commercial bank money. You know, so you know, there's a few things like that that I think, yeah, there there are contradictions or there are there are differences of opinion. But on those things, I think we would feel very confident to challenge mm. the, the professional academic Definitely. because we've got we've, we've got the evidence. Mm. Um, the, the other thing I would say, though, is that, I, and I, I think I'm speaking probably for all of us here, but correct me if I'm wrong, I just have a genuine curiosity about how, how these things work. Mm. I really want to know how it works, but I'm not precious about it. I don't have a career built on it. 
and I don't have anything to lose. And if I'm shown mm. to be wrong about something, that's fine. I'm really not bothered. Absolutely. Um, and yeah. th- this probably sounds more cynical than I wanted to, but you do get the sense sometimes with professional economists, especially especially engaging on things like Twitter, which is a public forum, and it's never going to it's never going to be the the most sort of tasteful discussion, is it? But you do sometimes get the impression that um, professional economists have something to lose, you know. That they're a mandated expert in their field and they cannot be shown to be wrong mm. about something, you know. And I, I, I might be wrong about that and that might be overly cynical or maybe it's true of some people and not true of others. So I don't, I don't want to generalise it too much, but, but I, I certainly do not feel like that at all. If I'm shown to be wrong, that's absolutely fine. So, mm. so, take, so you know, ch- challenging, an econo- challenging a professional economist is either going to be fine because I've... I or we have got the evidence that backs it what we want to say, or we'll be shown to be wrong. And as far as I'm concerned, I don't lose anything. Yeah. I think uh, in terms of um, in terms of the, the the reason I said that to David was uh, was was basically in the sense of trying to ensure that if I were to go ahead, or as it turned out, the three of us were to go ahead and, and write something like this uh, and do the the hard uh, hard work of of research, it was about um, having credibility. Um, amongst academics, because it, it is a bit of a siloed world, and it's a rare academic that will actually celebrate the overturning of his work, of his life work, potentially. <laughs> you know, um, there are um, circumstances, or, or there are times when you've heard of academics who have actually celebrated the overturning of their work, but they're very rare. <laughs> mm, it's very true of that. I mean, one of the things that we can do because of the way that we were set up, is we can actually do science in its purest form. We're actually trying to genuinely understand mm. how it works, why it works like that. And from my perspective as a, as a systems uh, consultant, whether it can actually be improved, uh, simplified and streamlined. You know, I've been doing this, this sort of thing for, for 30 odd years, um, looking at systems and improving them. Um, it, it's what I do. I mean, and for me, this is, you know, this is just a big system. It's just the biggest system there is. And there's so much, so much of it could be, uh, could be vastly improved um, and streamlined. And, and that would be to everybody's benefit. And I think it's also incredible to, to think that uh, no academic uh, in the UK has actually taken the time to do the investigation and research that's uh, that's required um, to to understand the system and therefore uh, underpin their work, it's just it hasn't happened. And therefore, once you've having done this work, you can now see the holes um, in 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 academia and where they're going wrong because they just they haven't they haven't done the work to understand the institutional and administrative uh, and legislative arrangements. They're, they're and it really just... begs the question of why. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, it's, it's, it's always incredible, begs the question really. why, and uh, and who who gains by. It's it's not it, what surprised me particularly over the last last few months is how little engagement we've had from people, which means or at least suggests that this isn't considered to be. It's it's, it's quite literally not considered important to understand how it works. What matters is that you believe whatever you're being told. But it's such a it's such an easy excuse, as I believe I mentioned at some point. It's such an easy excuse to say, "Oh, their paper is so overly complicated; it's not even worth talking about." But it's not your paper. That's it's your paper is complicated because what you're describing is complicated. Yeah, yeah, it is. and that's a tactic. And that's a tactic to disparage people of, "Oh, they're just so overly complicated." But they purposely made the system complicated. It's pure obfuscation. It's uh, it, it's you know it's a, it's almost um, what's well, operation by obscurity as opposed to security by obscurity. It's mm. uh, um, it's so labyrinthine, and uh, anybody who even remotely understands part of it seems to defend it defend it with their life as the freedom of information responses from treasury show yes. <laughs> we can't let people know this and, and yes. i don't know whether they're defending their patch or or what you know it's i think it's given strange. given modern times and uh, and modern communication methods you know internet uh, mobile technology it's much more easy to find information uh, out formally these were hidden away in libraries, in sort of discussion rooms, commissions and commissioned reports. 
that were only for the eyes of uh, of the elites. And it's interesting if you read. There's an, uh, a lovely report that came out in a long time ago, 1831, mm-hmm. that was uh, commissioned by the government to investigate reforming the exchequer system that had been extant for you know six seven hundred years. And the the language in that report shows uh, such deference to the old systems, and you know they said that they were reluctant to to overturn the ancient systems that had so obviously worked. Um, it was very, very interesting to, to read these, these people's words. But that's how they felt. And this is, this is why I think, I don't, I don't necessarily think that there's something nefarious about it. I think it's, it's just the way the system has just, you know, it's had appendage after appendage attached to it. And it's just grown up to be something that's just a monster. <laughs> Um, I don't. Th- I'm not so sure that there is necessarily. Certainly, back in time when uh, you know communication was much more simple, that it was about hiding it away. But I, I, I could, I could fall for the argument that it is today. Yeah, I mean, it, the one thing that the British system does is they, we carry on with traditions long after everybody else has discarded them. So it's yeah. hardly surprising that uh, that our structure is as uh, is as ridiculously complicated as it is. Um, we, we like to pitch and patch and uh, and prop things up, and that's why uh, that's why I live in a town with a castle in it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Richard, you mentioned there sort of technology today allows you to have things at your fingertips. I think that's important. For, like for me, researching this this stuff, just I mean, we were talking about software earlier, um, Google Docs and stuff, but that was just writing. But I mean, Google itself is probably the single most important tool because yeah. i mean i i don't know about you guys but i got quite adept at doing kind of like you know this sort of i don't know slightly advanced google searches where you where you search on a particular domain or you do certain keyword searches where you group words together and you look for particular phrases and things like that yeah. <laughs> so you know searching on the legislation.gov.uk website via google for particular phrases mm. yeah. um mm. You know that that's just just invaluable. You know it just directs you. You know okay, okay. You still might have to look through thirty pages of, oh. of different acts of parliament, but at least you're not looking through, you know, five thousand pages. Yeah. Um, and and just, but there's there's a few websites in particular. You know, legislation.gov.uk. That's where all the UK legislation is. There's Parliament.uk, which has, um, you know, parliamentary debates, but also parliamentary select committees. And all the sort of evidence, uh, transcriptions, interviews, and stuff that's associated with them. So if you, if you do a Google domain search on, you know, a particular domain, Parliament.uk or Legislation.gov.uk, it's just, you know, it makes it so efficient mm. to be able to find the source. And then and you're going straight to the horse's mouth. You know, you're going straight to the official. Well, in some cases, the actual law. Yeah. Or in other cases, in other cases, the the meetings and committees and debates yes. that, that led up to the law and, mm. and and nobody can argue with that you know you, you can't you're not you're not you're not taking this information from somebody's blog post you know you're taking it from the you know the the, the official the official places when uh, i say sharing the link i mean sharing the link of that google search mm. yeah 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 mm. no you're absolutely right i mean yeah mm. that's one of the wonderful things about um about the age that we live in you know mm. you you can you can communicate the exact detail that you want to yeah um if if that's what's appropriate, what's particularly useful has been because legislation.gov.uk manages the uh, the legislation over time. You can see how it's been changed by amendments over the years, hmm. and that's been very yeah. useful in uh, in trying to understand why why we ended up where we where we were, and how it started off in the first place. So you can actually see the evolution of this system over time. You can actually see over the uh, over the decades and the hundreds of years that we have in the UK. This this argument, constant argument going on between this this idea that that you can advance against taxes and no no we should collect them up front, it goes backwards and forwards. I mean it, there was an introduction within the nineteen twenties of a uh, of a statutory charge to repay a part of the national debt every year, and then every finance act after that stayed that that requirement and actually said no we we're we're not going to do that this year because we can't afford it. <laughs> <laughs> and they did that for was it thirty or forty years before they finally repealed yes. it in the fifties? Yes, yes that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so you know this 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 battle is is ongoing. It's not a a new conversation. We can look at select committee um, 
debates from the 1850s and you know other than the language is is very slightly archaic it's the same debate still that's been going on for ages and there's the one that, what, what was that one that we were looked at where there's, there's a guy describing in, in great detail how a, a treasury bill is printed uh, and it was all down to this idea that it should be the exchequer that issues the instrument of debt not the bank you know <laughs> quite literally who, who writes the piece of paper out was a it was a major debating point Hmm. it's really interesting okay uh if there's unless there's anything else last chance that's it yeah (laughs) okay all right all right uh great no this was this was wonderful uh i i uh thank you so much i feel like i feel like i'm much much clearer now good i hope that's hope that's useful for the recording hasn't destroyed itself halfway through (laughs) no it's it has it has its little quirks but but it, it generally i've never I've never had a problem where I've lost something. Okay. Um, so it, it's been a bit of a pain. One time I recorded with 10 people. That was pretty awful. <laughs> but, but once I finally got everything, it was, it was all right. Okay. Well, I, hope, so. I hope, that's, uh, hope that's worked then. And uh, next stop, individual interviews. That should be interesting. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Um, yeah. I, I, this is going to be interesting to uh, the kind of the, you know, make this a series where I look forward to it. I look forward to talking with each of you and uh, thank you for taking all this time, including on the individual interviews. And all right, thank you for doing You're this. welcome. Yeah, thank, you. thank thank you, Jeff. Nice, nice, to, nice to talk to you finally, Jeff. It's been great. Yes. Thank you. You yeah. too. All right, bye bye. Okay. See you. Bye. Bye. is by Rectech. You can find Rectech on SoundCloud and Spotify at W-R-E-C-K underscore T-E-C-H. To record Activist MMT, I use the iOS phone app Tape a Call Plus for recording phone calls and Zencaster for internet-based recordings. My post-production workflow starts by editing on the iOS app AnyTune Pro Plus then transferring those timestamps to my Windows desktop. At that point, I crudely process the audio in Audacity and then implement the edits and do all the final processing in the Reaper digital audio workstation. Activist MMT is hosted by Libsyn and the video teasers are created with the online Headliner app. Today's part two of my two-part conversation with all three co-authors of the 2020 paper, An Accounting Model of the UK Exchequer, which is published by the Gower Initiative for Modern Money Studies, or GIMS. The three authors are Richard Tai, Andy Berkeley, and Neil Wilson. Today's episode is part two of a two-part conversation, but it's also the final part in a larger seven-part series on the paper and its authors. 
The first five are personal interviews with each individual author. In part six last week and seven today, I talk with all three together about their paper in depth. It should also be noted that David Merrill played an important role in the paper and was the primary influence of this seven-part series. In order to strengthen my understanding of the paper and the Exchequer, today I ask several very specific questions. Some of the topics we discuss include the so-called independence of the Bank of England, intraday credit versus Exchequer credits versus actual money, the sui generis balancing item of the consolidated fund and other funds, and the daily sweeping process and how it relates to Plato, obviously. But for now, let's get right back to my conversation with Richard Tai, Andy Berkeley, and Neil Wilson.